The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Happy New Year, almost. I don't know when you're listening to this. Maybe it's on the verge of 2022, and maybe not. Maybe it's the end of some year other than 2021, which is when I'm recording this. Or maybe it's in the middle of the year. Happy year, whatever it is, and wherever you are in it. So, let's go to hell. (laughs) I'm kidding, of course. We're not going to hell, are we? Or are we? Do you believe in life after death? And do you believe there's a good place and a bad place? A place where people suffer? In a place where they feel wonderful? Are we punished for sins? Do you think it's a hot place full of other tormented souls? Does the devil live there too? Is it under the ground? What do you think of when you close your eyes and think of the word hell? Do you think anyone has ever visited there and come back to tell the tale? Or has any creative person or religious visionary or sacred text, has anyone or anything ever successfully described it? Maybe you just like the idea of it. Maybe you don't believe in it necessarily, but you think it keeps people in line. Or you just like stories about it because those stories make you think. Maybe give you that little tingle on your skin the way scary stories do. Or maybe they help keep yourself in line. So, this episode isn't really about hell, not all about hell, and and it's anyway, the podcast isn't a history of religious concepts or history of life after death imaginings or possibilities or anything like that, but it is a history of literature, and guess what? Literature has pretty much covered everything there is to cover in the world of human experiences, with hell not being an exception. So, is it possible to write a book about hell In literature, yes, it is. And our first guest today, Scott Bruce, has done it. Or edited one, I should say. The Penguin Book of Hell, available in bookstores near you. From the Bible through Dante and up to Treblinka and Guantanamo Bay, here is a rich source for nightmares, says the New York Times Book Review. 3,000 years of visions of hell from the ancient Near East to modern America. The book covers Dante, of course. (laughs) Hell's greatest poet and the Hebrew Bible and the debates in Victorian England about whether scientific achievements meant hell could not actually exist, disproving hell as a place. But that doesn't stop the literary-minded, does it? They can make a real place a metaphor or a state of mind or a place you travel to in spirit. Humans need hell, don't you think? Stephen Greenblatt was struck by how many of the pieces in this book, The Penguin Book of Hell, were about the powerless being furious at the corruption and greed of their ruling class. 
and how they had to imagine. They seemed almost compelled to imagine that those people were going to suffer somewhere, somehow, for what they had done. Philip Pullman, author of The Golden Compass and those books, says of this book, this is an amazing collection. And he notes, now that I know what hell is, I shall take more pains to avoid it. Hmm. So, we're not spending the full day on hell. Maybe we can ask Professor Bruce to rejoin us for that. Instead, we talk to him about dragons. That's the latest one of these penguin books that he's edited. It's fascinating. The Penguin Book of Dragons. And to preview that talk, I asked him a little bit about his book about hell, which we are going to have for you as our appetizer today. And if you haven't gotten your fill of hell, <laughs> haven't caught enough hell from this little morsel, you can check out the book. Or you can wait for us to have Professor Bruce back sometime for a full episode on hell. He's also going to be here to talk about zombies or the undead, which he also edited. Another book about that. He's a very interesting guy, Professor Bruce, taking on some interesting topics. And dragons is very interesting. Can't wait to bring you that interview. Okay. So today, we have just a few minutes in hell with Professor Bruce. Brace yourselves for that. That's the first course, the hors d'oeuvres, so to speak. And then, for our main course, we are returning to the world of Oscar Wilde. Matthew Sturgis will be our guest. So, how do we set this up? So, Christmas is over this year. When you're listening to this, 2021, Christmas is in the books, and you are taking a breath, right? A sigh of relaxation, the crunch of family and holiday meal preparation and gift buying and gift exchanging is over. Maybe you're not working this week, or maybe you're working a little less. If your colleagues are taking vacation, that always eases things a little bit, doesn't it? Or maybe Christmas, maybe you don't even celebrate Christmas, but you feel the weight of it anyway, the anticipation and the fever that builds every year toward Christmas Eve, toward Christmas Day. Well, that fever has cracked now, right? Christmas is out of the way, and you have a little time to look forward to the new year and maybe to start thinking about what you want to get done in the new year. And if you're like me, you put books on that list, books you want to read, things you want to learn, ways you want to stretch and grow. So if you have an interest in Oscar Wilde, if he's one of those people you enjoy learning about, if you find his life fascinating, as so many people do, then this is a book you will want to have on your list. It's not just a quick little thing. It's not a hot take. It's not a, a narrow, deep dive into anything. It's big and it's comprehensive. It's the life of Oscar Wilde, the one you need to read if this is what you're looking for. That book used to be Richard Ellman's biography, kind of a classic of the genre, those books about Yeats and Joyce and Wilde. But the Richard Ellman biography, which kudos to Mr. Ellman, I read and loved those books, all three of them, years and years and years ago. It's frankly a little outdated. It's from the 80s, and he got quite a bit wrong, in fact. And new scholarship has come to light since then. New facts and sort of a new way to approach a figure like 
Oscar Wilde, New Perspective. It was time for a new biography, and Matthew Sturgis stepped up and filled in that gap. So put this book on your list along with eating better and writing that screenplay and exercising more and treating people with kindness. Here's one you could add to your list. An easy thing to do, maybe make the world a little better, a little brighter. I had a conversation with a friend the other day, and we were talking about how at the height of the pandemic, when it first began, we were all reaching out to old friends. Just to say, hey, I was thinking about you. Everything okay? We didn't need an excuse. We knew people would be home. We knew they would be alone. We knew they would be, we wouldn't be interrupting a, a crazy busy work schedule or anything. Everyone had a little more time. And there was a compelling reason to just check in. Make sure you're okay. What's your situation? Are you alone? Do you have people with you? Are you getting your groceries delivered? Is your health holding up? God forbid, have you avoided this awful disease? Everything okay? We got some friends who are doctors, nurses, wanted to check in with them on a monthly basis, weekly. You okay? Everything okay? You got the PPE you need? And we've sort of gotten away from that. Now it's, uh, we used to say, hey, just just wanted to let you know I was thinking about you. I wish we lived closer and could talk more. How about that? Why can't we say that now? Or just text one of your old friends or the next girlfriend you're still friendly with or next boyfriend or an aunt or a cousin. Why not? Just make that connection, not just where you're blasting out yourself as social media sites kind of encourage you to do where you just say, I'm here, I've done this, or I've accomplished that, but reach out and ask a question. Are you okay? How's everything going? Say something nice. Here's, a, here's something I was thinking about, something I always liked about you. Spread a little humanity into unlikely places. There's so many dark corners in our lives. Why not fill them with a little sunshine once in a while? I don't mean, you know, the peacock sticking out your feathers. Say, pat me on the back because I'm checking in. I mean, just saying, hey, remember when you took me to visit your parents that time? I'm not sure I ever thanked you for that trip. I had such a good time. How are they doing? And how are you holding up? Okay, that's on my list for the new year. Make it a year of connections. And if you're listening to this in the middle of the year or the end of the year, whatever, just start now. It's easy enough to do, and you will help to make the world a little more heavenly and a little less hellish. Speaking of which, Scott Bruce and a glimpse of hell after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat 
has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're joined now by Professor Scott Bruce of Fordham University, editor of three Penguin books, The Penguin Book of the Undead, The Penguin Book of Hell, and The Penguin Book of Dragons, which is the most recent one, which we're going to be talking about more fully with him. But I was hoping we could get you, Professor Bruce, to share with us a favorite story of hell. Is there a, a, an excerpt or one that you want to convey to us that stood out to you as being particularly interesting or relevant? Absolutely. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share this story. One of my favorite stories about hell is a vision from the 12th century of a knight who falls into a death-like state. His soul leaves his body. And he's greeted by an angel who tells him he's going to lead him on a tour of hell to show him the sufferings that are waiting there for sinful individuals and what he can avoid if he lives a better life when he returns to his body. Yeah. This knight's name is Tundal, and this is known as the vision of Tundal. Poor Tundal, though, doesn't realize what he's in for because not only does the angel show him all of the various torments awaiting sinners, but Tundal's soul has to undergo the torments in order to fully understand them. Some of these are hideously inventive and very evocative. And I wanted to share one in particular with your readers that I just found to be particularly frightening. Okay. This is about a punishment awaiting monks and priests who fornicate and who defile themselves without moderation. As the angel led the way, they saw a beast very different from all the other beasts they had previously seen. It had two feet and two wings, a very long neck and an iron beak. It even had iron claws, and from its mouth it vomited a relentless flame. This beast sat in a swamp that was frozen over with ice, where it devoured any souls it could find. While they were in its stomach, these souls were reduced to nothing as their punishment. The beast then regurgitated them onto the surface of the frozen swamp, where their torments were renewed once again. All of the souls that descended into the swamp, men as well as women, were pregnant, and burdened in this way, they awaited the time when they would give birth. The offspring that they had conceived stung their entrails like vipers, causing these wretched souls to thrash about in the fetid waves of the sea of death, hardened over with ice. And when the time came to deliver, they screamed, filling the depths with their cries as they gave birth to serpents. I repeat that not only the women, but also the men gave birth to them, not those parts that nature made for this function, but through their arms and likewise through their chests, and the serpents came bursting out through all of their limbs. These newly born beasts had heads of burning iron and the sharpest beaks with which they shredded the bodies from which they emerged. On their tails, they had many spines like twisting fish hooks with which they pierced those souls that gave birth to them. 
These beasts sought to leave their hosts, but when they could not extract their tails, they turned their burning iron heads back into the bodies and did not stop consuming them until they were reduced to raw nerves and dry bones. I am now going to lock the doors and <laughs> crawl under the covers and come out in about 36 hours. <laughs> yeah, so be good, everybody. Okay, good. wow. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We will look forward to our discussion of the uh, Penguin Book of Dragons, and we're going to have another bite-sized piece from you of the Penguin Book of the Undead coming up. Professor Bruce, thank you very much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Joining me now is Matthew Sturgis, author of a new biography of Oscar Wilde called Oscar Wilde, A Life. The Evening Standard calls it, quote, simply the best modern biography of Wilde, end quote. Matthew Sturgis, welcome to the History of Literature. Uh, thank you very much. It's, it's lovely to be on. So I'm sure you often get the question, do we need another biography? Didn't Richard Elman write the definitive version in the late 1980s, et cetera, et cetera? I'm actually not that interested in that question because I know so many sources have emerged and our attitudes have changed so much these past 30 years. And, and frankly, for all his strengths, Elman took a very particular approach and he got a lot of things wrong. So let's skip over that question, if you don't mind. Instead, <laughs> instead, let's talk about you and the Oscar Wilde you found. So when did you first develop an interest in Oscar Wilde? I think he's really been a, a lifelong enthusiasm. I mean, I first became aware of him being read his his fairy stories. And mm. I think just something of the, the magic of that world. And I suppose his yeah. delight in in language and his, his sort of um, mischievous, subversion of expected norms and, and relationships. Intriguing and delightful. He was funny. Yeah. But also there was a real drama and engagement in the stories as, as well. And then from yeah. that, I think it yes, really came through his his work, through the, the picture of Dorian Gray and then his um, uh, his plays. But then sort of looming ever larger in the background was the, the, the sort of inescapable excitement and, and drama of his persona. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So do you remember, it sounds like you started having the stories read to you or, or reading the stories when you were a child. Do you remember when you started learning about Oscar Wilde's life and the incredible life story he had? So, yes, I mean, that was rather later, I should think. And I think read the, the full drama for it. But yes, I mean, it came at reading. Well, first of all, I remember there was a, an early biography of him by Hesketh Pierce that I read, which, you know, I think I found in my grandparents' house or, uh, or whatever. And that the, is, a, is a brilliant um, and colourful sort of exposition of him as a, as a personality. And it sets up the drama of his, his spectacular fall, too. So, yes, I, I think in my teens, my uh, late teens, I really sort of became aware of that. But, but his sort of presence as a a wit and uh, his epigrams. I mean, they right. are sort of wove, woven into the, the fabric of life in a way. And so they yeah. would crop up and, you know, you would uh, 
come across them, uh, you know, in other contexts or being being quoted and knew that he said or was supposed to have said when he arrived in America, I have nothing to declare but my genius or, or right. whatever. Right. Today they would be internet memes. And I guess when we were growing up, they would be, you'd see little quotes in the newspaper or you would hear them or, I mean, where did, where were we running across them? I guess I guess just wherever we consumed media, Oscar Wilde might be there with the ready quote. Yes, I mean, it would be exactly, as you say, quoted in a, some newspaper article or might even be a quiz question. Or, yeah, but, right. But, but yes, it was, it was there. But yes, I mean, that is one of the interesting things, you know, as you say now, that one encounters through social media and, and so many other sources. And also the, the sort of the way that the world has shifted in this, creation of sort of a whole stratum of celebrity culture mm. which is such a, a, a you know a dominant force in current world uh, view is something that you you know has become clear and clear that it, it reaches back to to wild that he was actually a, a very early example of and sort of or exponent celebrity celebrity culture and that he amazingly i mean as you investigate his life you realize that uh, he became famous really before he'd achieved anything, before right. his writings were, were published. He, he was an example of somebody who was famous for being famous. Yeah, yeah. His his plays almost seems like they came as a surprise. People thought he might not amount to anything or be more than just this this parlor wit or this speaker. It's almost as if, I don't know, we have I mean, the example we always use, which is probably quite dated now, but Zsa, Zsa Gabor was famous for, she was known as being famous for being famous. That's what we used to yeah, say, that yeah, yeah. she would be on uh, quiz shows or she would make cameo appearances and people would think, what did she ever actually do? What was she famous for in the first place? And it was more just <laughs> she was a celebrity, but then it would be as if she then wrote, you know, prize-winning novels or something. Yes, yes. And, and, and <laughs> you know, not just one, but, you know, to four successful players in the way, you know, sort of cap and capping it with the work of absolute genius, like the importance of being earnest. Yeah, so, yeah. so, I mean, that was an extraordinary thing that, yes, having achieved the fame, become famous for being famous and not having uh, done anything, and really uh, having struggled to, to produce something of, of, of real enduring worth. He had this, in a way, a, you know, a late flowering where he's, as yeah. you say, he surprised, surprised people and I think probably almost surprised himself. But I mean, yeah. but I think in the early stages of, of his career, because he wrote plays that were unsuccessful, the now forgotten Vera or the Nihilists about yeah. a sort of Russian Nihilist conspiracy and the Duchess of Padua, you know, five-act cod Shakespearean melodrama, essentially, which, you know, both of which he thought were, you know, wonderful works and he, throughout his life he was try, always trying to persuade theatrical producers to put on uh, the Duchess of Padua but they, they yes, failed to attract really an, an audience I mean they, they were both put on interestingly in America not in, in Britain and Vera sort of failed spectacularly and the Duchess of Padua actually did rather uh, rather better than the, the producer the actor manager who put it on sadly died quite soon after the the run began, and so it, it didn't uh, have the sustained life that it might have done. Was there a moment where you thought Wilde deserves a new biography, and I should be the one to write it? Well, the, uh, it, I think in the sort of decades that followed on from the, the 
wonderful book that was written by Richard Ellman, it just became clearer with each sort of passing year that the more and more pressing need for a new biography, yeah. not to do particularly with, the, with some of the shortcomings of, of Ellman's book, but just because so much interesting new information was coming to light, new, you know, new letters were being discovered, new manuscripts were turning up, and you had an interest in Wilde and was sort of following the uh, these uh, discoveries kept thinking, gosh, yes, well, that needs to be fitted into the picture. And, you know, this is enriching this whole area of Wilde's life and experience. And I think in an awful way, I kept hoping somebody else for my project. And I was thinking, you know, I would really like to read this book. You know, I mean, what a, yeah. a, a, a worthwhile project it would be. And I, um, in the end, I, I just lost patience and right, thought, OK, right. well, I'll, I'll have to to do it. Right. Once upon a time, I, I searched Apple Podcasts for the History of Literature podcast and found nothing. And that's when I realized, uh, well, I guess if I want to listen to a show like this, I'm going to have to do a show like this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think it's a, it's a very good sort of a motive force to, you know, to, yeah. to try and produce the thing you want, you would like to encounter. So were these sources available? Were you sitting at your laptop traveling all over the world to, to read new letters that hadn't been used before or read transcripts that hadn't been seen? Or were you back in the world of having to fly to archives or visit particular libraries in order to access the materials that had come out? So it was a, a, a bit of both. I mean, it, well, I mean, the legwork still has to, be, has to be done. I mean, and the archives visited. I mean, the, the, the greatest archive of wild material is in California, oddly, mm. at, at something mm -hmm. called the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library. And you know, it was put together or began to be put together. It's, it's gone on uh, growing over the years, but by, you know, Skian of some, some wealthy industrialist dynasty. And he began collecting quite soon after Wilde's death in, in the early 20th century. And it is just phenomenal what they have there. And although everyone who's written about Wilde, all the biographers have gone there and spent time, it was amazing going mm. there and, and just patiently uh, going through the material and, you know, new stuff came to light or... You know, we've suddenly made new connections between between materials that they had there. But then also, this biography was the first biography I'd written that really benefited from the huge sort of increase of the, of the digital realm and the internet. And some of that was to do with materials that were just uh, more ex accessible without having to visit libraries. But I suppose the really important and interesting thing was that this sort of amazing project to digitize the historic newspaper archives oh, uh, right. in, in, in America and in, in, in Britain or, or whatever. Yeah. And and previously to search through historic newspapers uh, oh. used to be the most exhausting and sort of <laughs> yes. soul-destroying thing that you've probably encountered in yeah. your, yes, the, oh. the terrible microfiche or the microfilm or, or even just a, a crumbling sort of volume, you know, sort of uh, the size of a paving stone that uh, yeah. uh, you had to sort of um, look through. But, uh, but basically you were relying on your eyes scanning through a, a page to, uh, to find a reference. But so the idea that you can now, you know, just type in your search in its double inverted commas and sort of send it off, sort of uh, through a, a whole run of newspapers, is is really extraordinary. And and because Wilde was such a figure in his own day, you know, uh, he he is written about a lot in the press. And so, yes, I mean, it enabled me to tra track elements of his life that um, 
had been lost before and, and, and also get a much fuller understanding of how people were, were regarding him at different moments of his life. And so, I mean, that that was sort of a, a huge additional sort of element that could be brought to this, to this biography. Okay, let's take a quick break and return with more from Matthew Sturgis and the real Oscar Wilde. So you say in the introduction that you view Wilde, quote, with a, with an historian, sorry, I had to, <laughs> I'm stumbling over the difference between A and Anne in the British and American, but your I, quote is... Yes, I did. <laughs> but well, I think even in, even in uh, English, it's, it's disputed, just when you say A. An historian or a historian. Okay, I'll say it your way. Quote, with an historian's eye to give a sense of contingency to chart his own experience of his life as he experienced it, end quote. And I can see how reading the the contemporary newspapers would put you in that frame of mind so you can see Wilde as his life is unfolding rather than with the benefit of hindsight or through his works. And Elman in particular kind of approached this like a as a, almost a literary critic where Wilde's life is seen through the prism of Wilde's work. I'm wondering, how does your approach differ and what kind of wild ends up coming across in your work, do you think? Well, I, yes, I think that the the, the main uh, difference is that sort of building it up from the bottom and, 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 and following his life as he experienced, uh, experienced it, you get a much clearer sense of, you know, his struggle, uh, really. The the idea you know, he wanted to be a success. He he sort of had this um, vision of himself that he projected, and and he had this sort of wonderful early flowering when you know, as a young man in his twenties, just down from university, he, he he came to London, and and through his his sort of uh, wit and his ex- extravagant poses, became famous for being famous. But then he, you know, hits this sand trap in a way where he he uh, he tries to publish a volume of poems and nobody's interested in it. He puts on a play, it's a terrible failure. And then he is really sort of struggling to find his voice. And he has to fall back on lecturing about home decoration and writing anonymous book reviews. And is really sort of kept afloat by the fact that he marries this very lovely and very wealthy Irish girl, Constance Lloyd. The temptation, you know, if, if you play back his works throughout his life and sort of just sort of assume that he was a success always or sort of that his success was somehow assured, whereas I think it very definitely, mm. well, it, it wasn't. And, yeah. and it, yes, I mean, I think it in a way makes more impressive and there's a heroic aspect in his, his refusal to to be crushed by his disappointments and his his sort of continuing belief in his own abilities. Yeah, because otherwise we get the, you might get the confident, the guy with the razor sharp wit who always has the right word for the right occasion and someone who's successful, he's sort of the star of every room and all of that. If If you take that from the later life when he's had success, and you impose it on these years of struggle. You get the you would get a, a false picture of what things were like for him then. Yes, you sort of slightly yes. He's sort of yeah parading uh, through mm. his through his life. And I, I suppose uh, another thing I was very conscious of in writing and researching the book was to to keep an eye always on the money. I mean, just to realize how little money he earned and and how he 
relied on well, some money he inherited when his father died or or on the money that came from his wife and he, he sort of borrowed from her and relations. And he had, you know, his one glorious moment of his early life was when he spent uh, a year in America and going on a sort of ever extended lecture tour really across the whole continent. And he came away from that with money, but I mean, not a huge amount, about you know, £60,000, $90,000 in today's money, but it was an excitement sort of for him to have earned money. But, you know, it was a one-off. I mean, that was one year in a decade. Right. So I understand that if we take this out of chronological order, we kind of miss, we, we impose some later success on the younger Oscar Wilde. But is there also the danger of his tragic fall and making the early life as if it's marching toward this inevitable doomed scenario? Or did you actually find that there were reasons to believe that he was always reckless or always, you know, sort of self-sabotaging or anything that would make you think, well, actually, that he was kind of a tragic hero from the from day one. No, I mean, I think, uh, again, the sort of uh, the temptation to shape life too loosely in, yeah. in, in, <laughs> into the, into the, <laughs> the dramatic art sort of loses you know the 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 sort of awful drift into the predicament yeah and you know his uh, you know he did become uh, reckless he became selfish and, and there's no doubt that that fed into the this disaster that you know he, he did to a certain extent bring down upon himself i mean the, you know the, the sort of mad notion of it uh, turned out of bringing a libel action against the Marquess of Queensbury it sort of resulted in the disaster. But by following the, uh, you know, the, the drama as it unfolded, you realised how, you know, finely balanced you know, that, that that moment was and, and that there was no reason why he shouldn't have, you know, in other circumstances, he could very easily have won the libel action uh, against Queensbury. You know, Queensbridge solicitors initially felt that the the case was was very much in Wilde's favour, and that they were urging you know Queensbridge to re- retract and or, or whatever. And it was was only a sort of awful concatenation of chances that meant that they, the solicitors, private detectives, got on to some of these young rent boys that uh, Wilde and Douglas had been seeing, and mm. uh, and they were able to put pressure on them and to get statements from them, and 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 gradually could put together this extraordinary picture of Wilde's sort of secret double life in the Victorian sexual underworld. Right, and then that, you know, sort of uh, suddenly Wilde was confronted with uh, uh, this awful array of evidence that had been put together against him, and uh, by which uh, point it was. You know, too late to withdraw from from the prosecution. I mean, it, it would would have been as catastrophic, really, as uh, as proceeding with it. In a way, it, uh, it increases the the real drama of it to to to, to, to you know to to follow it step by step rather than to to see it as a sort of self ordained piece of Greek tragedy. Right. So we've talked about the trials of Oscar Wilde here on the podcast before. We recently had an episode where we talked about him and his life in prison. And I'm wondering if we could go back to the very young Wild, which I don't think we've talked about at all. What kind of childhood did he have? It was an amazingly 
rich and stimulating childhood. His his parents were extraordinary people. Both of, I don't know if you've ever been to, to Dublin and to Marion Square, the house in which he was born and brought up, but uh, well, not born but brought up. But it, it's this very handsome Georgian house on the on the most elegant square in in Dublin. And as you approach it, there's a blue plaque on the on the facade. And you think, oh, yes, well, this is Oscar's house. The plaque will be describing that. But actually, the plaque says uh, this was the house of Sir William Wilde, Oscar's wow. father. Yeah. And then it lists his uh, achievements. And oh. you know, he, he was eye and ear surgeon. He was an antiquarian. He was a travel writer. He was a, the leading st- statistician, medical statistician right. in Ireland. He, he catalogued the collection of the Royal Irish Institute. He, I mean, just one of those amazing Victorian polymaths. And and Oscar's mother was was, was scarcely less extraordinary. I mean, she was a, an amazing, she described herself as a poetess, but I mean, uh, she wrote sort of in, inflammatory uh, nationalist verse. Uh, she, she was sort of uh, one of the great figures of Irish uh, nationalism in the, in the years immediately after the famine. And she was a larger than life figure. I mean, but both you know, uh, literally and uh, physically. So Oscar wasn't sort of a, a street urchin who so impressed his teachers he wound up at Oxford. This is somebody who could be expected to go to Oxford, probably based on parents like that. Yes. So he, well, I suppose it was interesting that he went to Oxford. That was uh, because initially he, I mean, his education happened in Ireland. He went mm-hmm. to an amazing school in, outside of, not in Dublin, but up in Enniskillen called the Patora Royal School, where he was brilliant taught. And, and that was really where he honed his skills as a classicist. Then he went to Trinity College Dublin and had a stellar career mm. there. But, but but just before he completed his degree, his tutor, he had two really sort of outstanding classical tutors just sort of taken over the department at Trinity at that time. And they were so impressed with him that they suggested that he should go to to Oxford, uh, mm. even though they uh, you know, were loath to admit that an English university might be even better than uh, yeah. an Irish one. They, they sort of did know that. And so he was an except, you know, something of a rarity in uh, going from Dublin to, um, yeah. to Oxford. And of course, he arrived at Oxford pretty much having done a, a, a full degree at Trinity. And so he was a bit older, maybe a year older than most of uh, his contemporaries at, at Oxford. He sort of knew the, the, you know, the texts uh, well already. And, and so that, I think, enhanced his, his reputation, his undergraduate reputation, that he, he seemed to have such a sort of uh, a grasp on things and uh, to be able to achieve things with such apparent ease. And yeah. he did work very hard, but he sort of, I think also disguised was Oxford. Oxford seemed to also set him on this path of here is a a world for you to conquer, but also you're going to be sort of an outsider within that world. You'll be you can you can be a big success, but you can also view it with some detachment. Is that the first that we see that in his personality? Was he like that when he was in Dublin or at his other schools, or is that something that was new when he went to England? Well, I think it. it, it, it there's no doubt it came into a, a sharper focus when he came to uh, to England and to Oxford because he he came as. Uh, as an Irishman to Oxford, and although he he didn't really have an accent even in Ireland, he lost whatever trace of uh, of a, an accent he might have had um, at Oxford. But he he was always conscious of that fact, and you know his his friends would you know, refer jokingly to him, you know, as uh, our amiable Irish uh, 
freshman or whatever. But he, I think, even you know, when he was at at school and um, at Trinity, he sort of tended to drift to the edge of, of things. He, he liked being an onlooker and, and uh, a commentator rather than an actor at the uh, you know the, at the core of all the the sort of activities that. Um, drive forward school life or university life yeah. but certainly that the sense of being a an, an outsider but someone who could charm and amuse the the company in which he found himself was something that the oxford really established as uh, as part of his persona yeah so i'm always amazed to read of for example paul mccartney briefly working at a factory and thinking that that maybe he could work his way up and become an executive there and it just seems so at odds with what we <laughs> yeah. we know that he was born to do but was yeah. there a road not taken for wild was he ever thinking he'd be a banker or go into some kind of other field or I mean, was definitely he definitely not a not yeah. a banker because his one uh, <laughs> So distinguishing feature throughout his academic career was his complete inability to master mathematics, which was <laughs> borne out right. by his uh, financial dealings in later life as well. But yeah. he, but he certainly did contemplate an academic career. He, he uh-huh. sort of wondered about that to he be a teacher for, for various, well, yes, yeah, sort of fellowships or whatever. Yeah. I mean, yeah. in, in a way, those fellowships they would have allowed him to to write. So, but then when he began, when he sort of came to London and was trying to make his way in the, the literary world, he, I think he, he realized that it would be uh, a useful thing to have a, an income of uh, some sort. And uh, he actually uh, applied repeatedly to, uh, to try and become um, a, school, a school inspector, mm. which is sort of a weird sort of civil service position where he went, yeah. went around sort of, uh, inspecting schools. <laughs> and there, there, there was a sort of literary precedent in that, in that Matthew Arnold, thinker who was a great hero of, of while he had had a, a parallel career as school inspector and yeah. I think uh, there was a degree of emulation in, in that but did he take it seriously all sorts of strings uh, well I mean Wilde was never appointed oh, he, right, never, right. he never got the but yes his friends were always coming up with bright ideas of things that he might do to, to earn a living I mean there, there was some thought <laughs> that perhaps he should go on the stage <laughs> but, and, then, and then there was a very fanciful notion that because he'd done so much to popularize the sunflower and the lily in his sort of early poems and writings that he should perhaps start a market garden and grow sunflowers because uh, he'd be able to publicize them. But he didn't think he wanted to have an, uh, a job that would involve wearing boots. And so uh, he turned that back. So, so yes, these tempting blisters, I think uh, they, they flickered, but, but never really came into focus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, today he'd be such a brand. I mean, he he could probably sell wallpaper or, you know, sheets or uh, things yes. like that. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, well, the extraordinary thing was he was a brand in his own day. I mean, yeah. uh, although in the rather unregulated commercial world of that time, he he didn't benefit uh, mm. from it. So, you know, when he spent his, his year in, in North America, uh, numerous uh, companies sort of took his image and and used it to advertise, you know, everything from overcoats to throat pastels or cigarettes or, or whatever. But now I think yes, he, he, his agents would <laughs> be uh, <laughs> able to keep a, a close control over it and, and make sure the royalties came to him. Right. So when you look at the wild kind of from this period before he has his big success, the world looks at him, I think your phrase was an unflappable epigrammatic aesthete. What's the wild that you see? Is he more earnest than that? Is he sadder than that? Is he, what do you, what do you see in these years? Yes, he wasn't 
sad at all, at all. I and mean, one of the very engaging things about him is his really the buoyancy of his spirit and his his optimism and yeah. his his energy. And I think he he was yes he was he was sort of earnest in his his sort of mission as he saw it to to encourage people to to understand the importance of art in every aspect of life. And so uh, so he yes he was in a way you know a man with a a mission, but but I think he understood instinctively, or found that it chimed with his own nature, that that humour was an important part of fixing that message. You know, the the, the first thing he said that for which he really became famous was was this wonderful line that he spun even while he was at Oxford, actually, about uh, you know every day I find it harder and harder to live up to my blue china, which sort of <laughs> the sort of witty encapsulation of that idea that he'd really learned from from the writings of John Ruskin mm. about the you know the, the the importance of beauty and the fact that beauty of itself had a sort of moral force that you know art didn't have to sort of preach ideas of goodness just if if you surrounded yourself with beautiful beautiful things or found yourself surrounded by beautiful things you would find that that uh, um would lead you to become a better person, and and Wilde thought this was you know an amazing, beautiful idea, and needed to be to be spread and reinforced. Right. And and I think that and it's that sort of enthusiasm and engagement is well, it was an attractive trait in him, and, and was something that did drive him forward. Yeah. So let's get to the moment everyone wonders about, where his friends are advising him. This is. This is madness. This will not end well for you. And he ignores their advice and, and plunges forward. What do you think led him to ignore his friend's advice at these crucial moments? Was he goaded into it by Bosey? Was he blinded by love? Was it a sense of chivalry? Was it self-sabotage? What do you what do you think led him down that horrible path at the end? Well, of course, yes, I think that I mean he was advised. But by friends at different times, sort of during the unfolding uh, drama of the trials, you know. And I think, well, as we touched on earlier, in the early stages of the of his sort of proceedings against Queensbury, really everyone was saying, you know, this is great, you know, you're going to win. Then, sort of just as um, he was approaching the debacle, friends began to sound a note of caution. You know, his friend Frank Harris said, you know, you know, all legal contests are very uncertain, you know, and um, and begin to hear rumors about what they might have found. And yeah. and, and so at that stage, I think really uh, just he felt he'd waded in too too far. And, uh-huh. and, um, and then when the, 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 the sort of awful knockdown blow came, reading the full plea of justification that Queensbridge solicitors has been put together sort of listing all his assignations with these young men and it was just at a practical level too late uh, to do anything and, yeah. and so but then the next crisis was when he after uh, two days of that trial he withdrew from the prosecution and sort of admitted that the justification of, of Queensbury's libel then you know that might have been a moment when he uh, he could have left the country and so avoided being arrested. I mean, he didn't. Um, it wasn't a warrant would be issued against him, so he sort of delayed, and he just seems to have been unable to make up his mind whether yeah. he was staying or going. And I think was sort of stunned by events, really, uh, in in a way, and that sort yeah. of his sort of own sense of agency yeah. evaporated, and and a sort of awful 
inertia settled on him. Yeah. But then, and then once he had been arrested and uh, he was imprisoned, and then finally he was bail. He, he managed to get bail, although it took a long time to get bail. And then there was a suggestion. People said, "Well, why don't you skip bail and escape? Because you know uh, the chances are you will be." Uh, convicted and will go to prison. And I think by that stage, he he felt well, that he couldn't let down his bails. And yeah. that in a way, there was a sort of a drama and a fitness in in facing this catastrophe and whatever it might bring. And, and that he could dramatize it to himself or frame it to himself as, you know, being a, a, a sort of enduring display of his great love for Bosey. Uh, that he was doing this. It's easy for us to say, oh, well, obviously you should have chosen exile and you should have fled. You could have avoided what was in store for you. But I'm sort of reminded of the the people a generation ahead of me who had this choice of maybe being drafted to go to Vietnam. And, and yeah, maybe yeah. people around them would be telling them, this is crazy, don't go. You can go to Canada, you can get out of it. And, and the people saying, you know, I wasn't in support of the war, but I didn't, I couldn't picture myself as somebody who was running away or somebody who was evading what other people were doing. And it's it's not even a strong sense of, of duty or obligation or of unwillingness to break the law or anything, but just more of a self-conception. I'm unable to conceptualize yeah. myself as someone who's fleeing or in exile. Yeah, but I think that that's very, an interesting and good Analogy. I mean, there the, the was a, a strain of him that exactly felt that he, you know, he didn't want to, uh, couldn't see himself as a, a fugitive, sort of all his life, you know, banished from from England. He, he you know, he'd encountered such people, uh, you know, living in Florence or in Italy, elsewhere, who, you know, had disgraced themselves in, uh, in some way or another back in Britain, and they were living out these sort of uh, slightly constrained expatriate lives over there, and he, he just felt. That that was yes, I mean, would be against his nature, and and he received sort of encouragement in that vision as well. Apparently, his mother uh, you know, said that you know, if he stayed and whatever happened, you know, she would always she, he would always be her son, and you know, she he would have her love. But uh, if he if he absconded, she you know didn't want to hear from him again. And so I yes, yeah, so I think all that certainly played into the. Makes. And I think also, of course, there's that, that thing that you know, uh, we make decisions, you know, we, we find ourselves acting in a certain way, and it's not always clear what the motives, what the exact motives are. And then we, we almost create motives afterwards, you know, or create uh, justifications or, or sort of frame our decision in a, in a certain way. And I think, you know, Wilde was always doing that in, uh, throughout his life. And, and so he sort of made his decision and then he chose to uh, to frame it as as this sort of sacrifice of love. Right. So you may, we're coming to the end here, you make a bold claim, uh, uh, you set forth a bold proposition in your introduction, I'm not going to call it a hot take, but it's kind of a hot take. Uh, you say in Britain, Wilde is as recognizable as Shakespeare and Jane Austen. In America, he's comparable to Twain. In France, he's in a category with Baudelaire and Proust. And yet you say his prominence increases each year and he seems likely to outstrip them all. What is it about Oscar Wilde that taps into something so important to us? How did, Why does he resonate? Or I guess... First of all, are you talking about his works or him as a cultural figure? So I, th I think in a way it's probably 
make him as a cultural figure. I, yeah. uh, I, was, yeah. I was struck by it when I was uh, in fact, working on the book, and I sort of went into the British Library one day, and they'd got some sort of huge collage poster sort of up in the in the front entrance, um, you know, celebrating literature, and there were sort of various figures, you know, there was the Alice from Alice in Wonderland, mm-hmm. and this, that, and the other, and the three figures, uh, the sort of authors who were represented were Shakespeare, who you recognize instantly, Jane Austen, who was wearing her little sort of mob cap, <laughs> which we've come to recognize, right. and and Oscar, yeah. actually standing in the middle. And, and just, wow. yes, I mean, that was, they were thinking, well, we, we need to have people that everyone will just go instantly. Oh, yes, that's Shakespeare, that's, that's Jane Austen. And I suppose in terms of his, his sort of cultural resonance, it, it's just something that uh, you know, it's intriguing that if you and I became aware of when working on the book that you know it is very rare almost that you pick up a newspaper or a magazine and you don't come across some some reference mm. uh, to Wilde uh, being quoted. Uh, uh, you know, he's is or referred to. He's he's somebody who is very present in the, in the cultural discourse as a sort of reference point and a touchstone, and it's you know extraordinary how he still has that power to communicate uh, to us so directly you know if you think of all the other great great figures of um victorian particularly intellectual life you know the people like ruskin or, or matthew arnold or walter pater or whatever you know they're, they're essentially unread now and some of them are i mean not unreadable but you know when you read them you 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 feel that you're sort of uh, trying to work out, you know, what this 19th century voice is is telling you. Whereas you pick up, um, you know, Wilde's the, the Soul of Man Under Socialism, or um, one of his essays, or one of his stories, and and you just feel you're in direct communication with, with someone. You, you, you uh, you're laughing where you're supposed to laugh. You're you're being intrigued by an idea where he's putting forward an idea, and uh, I mean that is a, a remarkable. Uh, thing and a, uh, a remarkable achievement of his art that, yeah. it, that that it is so fresh. Do you think it's also because we view him? We know so much about his life, and we view him as someone who was testing the constraints of society or refusing to accept the limits that were being placed on him. He was a transgressor, and he was punished for it. And he's sort of almost an example of a writer who mattered in a way more than just someone who was on the page. Yes, yes. No, undoubtedly the, the drama of his of his life and the fact that, you know, those dramas are, are dramas that resonate with us in a particular way today. I mean, the, you know, that he was a, a sexual heretic, that he was a precursor of celebrity culture, that issues or aspects of, uh, of modern life that, uh, that burn very brightly uh, for us. And so the fact that he um, stands in an intriguing relation to them is, you know, makes him interesting and important and vital. Mm. Well, the book is called Oscar Wilde, A Life, available now on both sides of the pond. Matthew Sturgis, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Scott Bruce, who will be back soon with another brief discussion of this time of Zombies, the Undead, and for a full discussion of Dragons. And my thanks to Matthew Sturgis 
for giving us another look at Oscar Wilde. Like I said, a lot of people have different angles on Wilde. They zero in on one thing or another, which is great. This book takes a different approach. It's more of a comprehensive look. You get it all. Wild from start to finish. It's called Oscar A Life. Actually, if I'm not mistaken, it was called Oscar A Life when it came out in the UK. In America, the title is Oscar Wilde A Life, making me wonder which Oscar they thought we Americans might think of instead of Oscar Wilde. Kind of like the movie The Madness of George III, or... George III in Roman numerals, as it was called in the UK and in America. They worried that people would think it was the third Madness of George movie and that they had missed parts one and two. So they changed the title from The Madness of George III to The Madness of King George. Oscar Wilde apparently has one name recognition in the UK, like Prince or Madonna or Beyonce or Diana. Here in the States, apparently he doesn't. But to be honest, the only Oscar that I could think of that might have interfered... Well, I guess there was basketball superstar Oscar Robertson or the Oscars, plural, a.k.a. the Academy Awards. And the Oscar named Pistorius has become a bit notorious. Feel free to use that in your next Gilbert and Sullivan musical if you're writing one. Honestly, the only Oscar I could think of that might be up there in name recognition with Oscar Wilde is... Oscar the Grouch, who, well, if there's an 864-page version of Oscar the Grouch's life to be told, I'll open up my wallet for it, but I suspect that is not the case. So anyway, Oscar Wilde, A Life by Matthew Sturgis. Do check it out. We'll be back soon with a look at Robert Hayden. We've got Milton coming up in the new year, and Shirley Hazard scheduled to make an appearance. Some classic 20th century works from both China and India are already recorded, teed up, and ready to go. Sigmund Freud is on the calendar. How have we not talked about him yet? I guess we did a little bit with Nabokov. How much Nabokov hated him. We will tackle the good doctor himself very soon. Not literally. Although if you get a chuckle imagining me flying across some courtyard and tangling up the, the good doctor from Vienna, my shoulder driving into his legs, catching him off guard, sending him toppling to the ground, laughing with surprise and wheezing with delight, saying, Oh, mein Gott, Jack Wilson, you roguish knave. You have tackled the founder of psychoanalysis. Well, go right ahead. That's what I'm here for, to bring you pleasure in whatever way I can. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.